910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. Be sure to check out our other resources, including blogs, posts, and our two award-winning books, No Half Truths Allowed and The Bible Blueprint. You can find everything on our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com, including information on our new book, The Final Exodus, Deciphering the Book of Revelation, due out September 1st. You can even contact us straight from the website if you have any questions, comments, or would like to inquire about us speaking at your next women's event. And be sure to follow us on all social media outlets. Welcome back. When we ended the last episode, we told you that the first three chapters of Ephesians are the indicatives, a telling of who we are based on all the things God's done for us. He decided to adopt, chose who to adopt, and did all the work necessary to adopt us to the very last detail and lavished us with his grace and mercy. Now we get to the second half of the book of Ephesians, which are the imperatives. That's what we're told to do in light of the fact that we're God's children and all that he's done for us. This indicative and imperative thing flips on its head what most people think about the Bible and even Christianity. And it's what makes Christianity a totally different religion than any of the false religions that are out there. Most, if not all religions, are about doing. If I wanted to be a Muslim, not that I could be because I'm a (laughs) Christian, I would start learning about and putting into practice Islamic beliefs and rituals. If I wanted to be a Hindu, I would learn about their practices and I would start practicing them. If I wanted to be a Buddhist, I would do the same. But in Christianity, there's none of that. That's right. And that's an important distinction to understand because many Christians think if they follow the rules, attend church, serve, that's what makes them a Christian. Many are deceived by this. They think they're saved when they're not. Nothing we do saves us. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, period. We can't make ourselves Christians. We didn't do anything to earn the title Christian. God did it all. If you remember back to episode 133, we're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. The work is finished. And we didn't do that. Christ did. There's no other religion on the planet like that. That's a large part of what Paul teaches in the first three chapters. Yes, it is. And next, Paul is saying, in light of all that stuff that I just told you, I, who am a prisoner right now because of the gospel, am urging you to walk worthy of being a child of God. And just as a reminder, Paul is saying this to Jews and Gentiles, people who could not stand each other at one point, but who've now been put together as a church and in the family together. They're not team Jew and team Gentile anymore. Now they're both team Jesus and they need to get it because they're going to need each other. Go to church with anybody that you consider difficult. Well, you know what? This passage we're going to talk about today just might be for you. (laughs) So I'm guessing it's for all of us. Yes. Let's start digging into Ephesians chapter four. I'll start. I'll read verses one to three. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's the end of scripture. 
Paul's calling these two groups and us to be eager to maintain a unity that they and all Christians already have. So let's stop there for a minute. We already have unity, even with our brothers and sisters that are the least like us on the planet. Unity isn't something that the Christian church has to drum up or strive for. It's not something the church has to create. We already have unity because we all have the same spirit living in us. The peace we have with God because of what Christ has done for us is what binds us together with one another. That's right. The fact that we're already united is a key thing to keep in mind because it's not something that we can separate, nor is it something that we should want to see separated. That's why Paul tells us to be eager to maintain it. If we're going to be eager about something, it means we're going to go about it enthusiastically. And he tells us how to go about it, starting with what's arguably the most important thing of all, and that is humility. You know, I feel like humility is something people have very little respect for. I think the world likes humble people, but they don't respect humble people. I think people today respect boldness and assertiveness much more than someone being humble. And let's be honest, Chris, we don't see a lot of humility. No, we don't. And I would agree with you. It's kind of a low thing on the totem pole unless it's somebody that you're dealing with. And then, of course, you want them to be humble, (laughs) you know. The world may like humble people, like you said, and they might think that they're nice to be around, but brashness and boldness gets more attention and maybe even more kudos. I can see that in the world, but also sometimes in the church. Everybody wants to be a leader in the church, but good leaders need humility. Good leaders are people who are teachable. You have to be humble to be teachable. Humbleness is not putting yourself down. It's about having your mind off yourself and thinking about others more. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's just an adage that I've always heard. Yeah, I I agree completely. That's how I always remember what humility is. The second thing Paul mentions is gentleness, which goes right along with that. Gentleness means being kind and tenderhearted towards people. And he calls on this mixed group of people to have patience. We can all imagine how much people who were once enemies, but are now family, need patience. I mean, it didn't work out for Romeo and Juliet's families, but it needs to work out in the church. Yeah. We may not always feel like it, but Paul is calling the church to patience, bearing with one another in love. That's the type of love that's not always warm, fuzzy feelings, that's for sure. It's the kind of love where sometimes you have to choose to love another person, despite the fact that they're driving you crazy or making you really, really angry. So true. And Paul doesn't shy away from calling believers to act like they're supposed to, regardless of how hard it is. And that's likely why he starts out reminding them that he's a prisoner because of the gospel. Bearing with somebody may mean that you have to respond lovingly when someone has hurt you. You know, with the Holy Spirit living inside us, we can do even that. We do have the power to. And love is the key. 
John 13, 35 says that that's how the world will know that we belong to God's family. It says, if you love each other, everyone will know that you are my disciples. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Chris, it just makes me think, isn't that the exact opposite of what we're seeing with those in power? They don't hesitate Mm -hmm. to eat each other and destroy each other. That's exactly right. And we said it before, but that's what we see with the wicked eating each other alive at the end of Revelation. Yeah. And as Christians, that makes us very different. Mm -hmm. And it's why Paul talks about the importance of having love in the midst of using our gifts in the church in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter. Love is the greatest part of being a believer. So we have to strive for love between believers even when we don't feel like it. You may feel like you're closer to some of your unsaved friends or relatives than you are to some fellow believers. But in reality, there's a bond you have with all other believers that you don't and won't ever have with unbelievers. I think that's why you can be far from home and run into another believer. And there's just something comfortable about being around them that's pretty instantaneous. You know, sometimes you just know someone else is a believer. It's just an instinct you get from them. These people Paul is writing to were no longer team Jew or team Gentile, like you said, Chris. They're team Jesus. And they're going to need to grasp that truth and live like it because there's only one other team, and that's team Satan. We say it all the time. There are only two groups of people, the elect and the non-elect, sheep and goats. Team Jesus and Team Satan. And the next three verses are a Trinitarian reminder that all believers are one. Yeah, we're all one body with one spirit, the Holy Spirit. And Paul continues with this Trinitarian one idea. We have one hope, eternal life with God, where we get to enjoy him forever. We have one Lord, Jesus, whose rule we submit ourselves to. We have one faith. We trust in the salvation he's achieved for us. We have one baptism, the baptism of all believers into one body, which happened when each of us had our hearts regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and we came to believe. Yeah, and we should note here that this verse is not talking about the different modes of baptism. In fact, in light of this passage, it should convict us of fighting about the different modes of baptism. We don't need to be having pedo or credo baptism, meaning whether you baptize in infants or baptize making, you know, after making a confession of faith, Twitter fights. I've seen it over and over and over again, especially between Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians. That's ridiculous. It's important to discuss these theological differences, but we need to be careful that we're not creating division. This verse is also not talking about that whole false charismatic idea of having a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, where they think that you can become some super upper echelon Christian by having some special baptism of the Spirit where you speak in tongues. Not only is that divisive, it's totally false. It's not in the Bible anywhere. We are all one with the same Spirit living in us. Amen to that. Verse six gives us another, we are called to one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. Christ procured our salvation for us and God the father is omnipresent. He's with all believers all the time throughout all the universe. We are all one. 
Yes. All believers are one body too. We're members of one another, but we have different functions. The example really does not get any simpler than the one that Paul uses over and over in the scriptures. Some people are eyes, some are knees, some are pinky fingers, and some are lips. All parts of the body have their own functions. It's the same with the church body. All the parts are needed. All the parts are useful. You don't see knees walking around by themselves, and you don't see eyeballs rolling around on the floor. They've got their proper place to be and their proper things to be doing that they were created to do in order for things to work right. Absolutely. First Corinthians 12, 14 to 20 says, for the body does not consist of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the members of the body, every one of them, according to his design. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. It's a simple picture, but it works, you know? And we have to recognize the importance of everyone in the body of Christ. No one part is greater than the other. Every one of us is needed. So if you're sitting in church and you're feeling like you got nothing worthwhile to contribute, so you never serve, you never get involved or whatever you're doing, you need to repent and get busy. And if you're sitting in church and you think that you don't need some of the believers that God's placed there with you, you need to repent because you do. The body functions properly when all its parts are there and working. I believe that's partly why we have those scriptures that talk about kings and warriors having their big toes cut off or their thumbs cut off. They're greatly hindered when those things happen. If you're missing your thumb, you can't hold a sword. You can't fight. That's why they cut the guy's thumbs off. A thumb doesn't seem like it's as big a deal as a mouth or a brain, but if you can't defend yourself because you don't have a thumb, someone can cut your head off. And then what good's your brain or your mouth? (laughs) You don't have it anymore. And same with a big toe. You can't run or walk well without a big toe. That's why they cut their big toes off so they couldn't get away and run. It definitely would hinder your race. Yeah. You know, and what can you do without a head? It was that excellent point, Rose. (laughs) You know, Ephesians 4, 7 says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is not talking about different amounts of saving grace. Remember, according to Ephesians 1, 8, God lavished the riches of his saving grace on us, all of us. But Christ, as head of the church, bestows the grace for believers to serve the church with our gifts. Everyone will have whatever they need to do the work that God planned in advance for them to walk in according to Ephesians 2.10. But here, Paul's referencing specific gifts, the ones of preaching and teaching. Jesus descended to earth, the lower regions talked about in verse 9, at his incarnation. He ascended back to heaven 40 days after he rose from the grave. Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18, and the quote is, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives 
and he gave gifts to men. End of scripture. This can be a little confusing here because Paul uses that psalm, but a little differently. The psalm talks about the victor receiving gifts among men. But here, Paul uses this picture of the victor, the resurrected Christ, leading the captives of his victory away in chains. He's leading away his and our vanquished foes, Satan and his demons. That's right. Satan and the demons are bound for a thousand-year millennial period that's talked about in Revelation. It's not a literal thousand years. It's the time between his ascension and his second coming. These captives are bound so that the gospel can go forth to all the elect. At some point, right before Christ's return, they'll be let loose for a bit. But for now, Satan's power is limited. Preaching and teaching the gospel truth will go forward to all the nations. It will happen. Paul finishes this section saying that he gave gifts to men. So let's talk about what are those gifts? Well, verse 11 tells us what they are. They are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. All people who are charged with teaching us scripture. So why are teachers of scripture called gifts, Rose? Well, I'm glad you asked. The pastor shepherds of your church are gifts because they're there to teach you. It's the most important thing that happens in your church outside of prayer and worshiping God. In fact, it is a form of worshiping God. Their job is to equip the saints for doing ministry work, according to Ephesians 4.12. We went into detail about the pastor's role in the church in episode 125, Transformed to Fit in the Body. So we're not going to say a lot about it here, but the pastor's job, his job is to study, pray, and teach you. His job isn't running around the community making friends so your numbers get built up. He's there to equip the saints so they can do the work God prepared in advance for them to do. Exactly. So what does this look like practically? Well, the Ephesus church had two problems and the church today has the same ones. First, the Ephesus church was suffering under persecution. There was a huge temple to the goddess Artemis, and there was a huge money-making enterprise in Ephesus where craftsmen were making the silver shrines of Artemis. Christianity is what caused that whole riot that Luke tells us about in Acts 19. These silversmiths' businesses were impacted as people turned to Christ and away from Artemis. What happens today when Christians boycott movies or businesses because they go against what we believe? Well, they may not riot in the streets against Christianity yet, but if they start losing much money, they're gonna, there's going to be persecution because of it. Absolutely. And we've seen lawsuits put against Christians for doing that. And it's very likely that Ephesus had silver workers that were converted to Christianity. So what happens with workers who can't go along with company policies that require them to violate their Christian beliefs? We just saw this with Disney. You know what happens? They lose their jobs. That's what we see in the book of Revelation and what Jesus says to the seven churches, one of which is the church of Ephesus. And it's happening today. Like we said, we just saw it in the news with Disney. Our pastors are Christ's gift to us because they bring us the word and explain the scriptures to us every week and maybe throughout the week if they have studies. When the word is taught, it changes us. There we are going again, Chris, saying read and learn your Bible. <laughs> 
it's so important. It's just so important. You know, what kind of advice do you give your Christian brother or sister who's telling you that their kids are really, really angry at them for forbidding them from watching a certain movie? You have to know what God would say about that. How are you going to be able to love that person that seems extremely unlovable by having been taught what you've been forgiven of by God? You want to be able to patiently listen to someone who always bends your ear with their latest problems. You want a heart to help meet the needs of someone because they stood for the Lord and lost their job. Well, you need to have your heart softened by the word of God. Yes. And the Ephesus church's second problem, much like the evangelical church today, is danger from false teachers. In Acts 20, Paul calls the elders from the Ephesus church to him to say goodbye for the last time. He tells them, keep watch over yourselves and the entire flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise up and distort the truth to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert and remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. Yeah. You want to be able to stand against the temptations of Satan? You can do what much of evangelical Christianity has done and watch War Room by Priscilla Shirer. She'll teach you to stomp around your kitchen and demand and declare things to the devil. But that's not biblical. So it's not going to do you very much good. It's not going to get you far. You need your pastor teaching you and reminding you that you can resist the devil and he will flee from you, according to James 4, 7. Or that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. I can't stand that stomping around denouncing Satan. I just find it so dishonoring to God. It's ridiculous. It, well, it is ridiculous you, too. Ridiculous. You know you know how much, you and I both know, we know how many women just flock to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yep. The gifts of our pastors and teachers are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood or womanhood to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, according to verses 12 and 13. So what would happen to your church if your whole congregation committed to a year of learning the Bible? Put aside all the other stuff and made a commitment to really learn the word of God and to pray, to be in church, to be in Sunday school, to be in a midweek Bible study, to be at prayer meeting. What would happen? Great question, Rose. Great question. You know, it shouldn't be lost on us that when Jesus was with Mary and Martha, Mary was commended for sitting at his feet and learning. And Martha, who was busy serving, was told by Jesus, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken away from her. We can be a very busy congregation, even a very serving congregation, and be messing up big time because we're neglecting the most important thing. If we're not taught 
the rest will not happen the way that it's supposed to. That's why those men are called gifts to the church. Yeah, the pastor feeds us the word. We eat it up and we grow to maturity and we help our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith do the same by speaking the truth in love. And as we've said before, at least in one other episode, that verse is not about confronting another believer about sin. That verse in its context is about teaching sound doctrine. We lovingly, humbly, and gently help our brothers and sisters grow up to maturity by teaching, correcting, and rebuking them with scripture. Amen to that. Knowing and understanding scripture is what equips us for ministry inside and outside of our congregations. And I'm just going to say here that what we do within our congregations is almost more important than what we go outside of our churches and do. We are taught scripture, and then we go and do what we've been gifted to do. We don't want to get the cart before the horse. It's too important not to get this right. Yeah, that's a great point. Mature Christians are not tossed to and fro by the false teachers because they know the truth. They're not coerced into believing they need something other than Jesus because they know better. Like we talked about last week, they know they have everything they need spiritually. They're not lured into believing God's going to bless every endeavor they take on just because they sent money to someone on TV. And like we said last week, they're not shaken when everything around them falls apart, even under the harshest persecutions. And mature Christians don't let their little brothers and sisters out blowing in the wind succumbing to those things either. They lovingly pick them up and dust them off and show them the truth. They use their gifts to help their brothers and sisters have a firm foundation to stand on so that they can help others and so on and so on and so on. We're all team Jesus and we have a common enemy. We need each other. Amen to that. And that's a good place to end today. Don't forget to keep an eye out for our latest book, The Final Exodus, Deciphering the Book of Revelation, due out on September 1st. Thanks for tuning in. Have a blessed day, everyone. 